Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash Goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, and I am pleased to report that we have all three of our Goodfellows in the House today. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Gentlemen, we don't have a guest today. We don't have a central theme. We're doing viewer mail questions. So I'd first like to start by thanking everybody watching this show who bothered to write into us. Uh, if we do not get your question today, do not take it as a personal slight. This is just simply a matter of quantity, not quality. Too many questions, too little time. So the more I talk, the less fewer questions we get to. So I will shut up and we'll get to the questions. Let's do a twofer to begin with, guys. Uh, Michael from Washington State writes the following. Given the recent or consistent downturn in the Chinese economy in Cold War II, what might you predict would be the crossover point or trigger to China lashing out economically or militarily at powers that seek to contain or thwart them in a particularly aggressive manner not normally seen? This dovetails with a question from Anthony in Taiwan, who laments the sad state of the CCP-controlled economy, and he asked, quote, I was wondering if you all could weigh in on whether China goes out with a bang or a fizzle. Neil, you want to start off, bang or a fizzle, and what is the tipping point for China? Well... I don't mind starting off. I just gave a lecture in Zurich last night on the subject of mutually assured financial destruction. Uh, and the argument of the uh, lecture was that the United States and China have a version of the problem that characterized the first Cold War. The first Cold War, you had uh, mutually assured nuclear destruction, which according to the theories of Tom Schelling and others, uh, was supposed to prevent World War III. And maybe it did, because World War III didn't happen. But at any event, by the 1960s, it was argued that both sides had such destructive nuclear capability that there really couldn't be World War III, hence assured destruction. Now, I think we have a different thing in the uh, second Cold War that we're in now, which is that the United States and China can't really afford to have a war because of the frailties, the very different frailties of their economic systems and the fact that they're still highly interdependent, which is, of course, the big difference between Cold, one and Cold, Cold War I and Cold War II. I mean, in Cold War I, there's basically not much economic interaction between the US and the Soviet Union. In Cold War II, there's still a lot of interaction between the US and China. What do we see right now? China slowing down, disappointing investors. Everybody realizes that the problems are profound, structural, demographic, debt-related, the real estate sectors in the tank. John, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the idea that this is a little bit like Japan after the 1980s bubble, uh, balance sheet recession uh, in many quarters of the economy. So I think the big question about China is, do these economic problems make Xi Jinping more likely to take risk geopolitically or less likely? And I think I'm going to come down on the side of more likely because I think as the economy slows, the CCP has to rely more on nationalism for its legitimacy. So I think we should assume that a China slowdown, 
might actually increase the risk of a confrontation of a Taiwan. I'll make one last point. I think the US has its own kind of constraints on the economic side. The economy is growing strongly. Uh, consumers are still spending. But if you look at the fiscal numbers, they're absolutely terrible. And the latest revisions of the deficit outlook by the Congressional Budget Office are absolutely eye-poppingly terrible. Uh, it's an, an unsustainable fiscal trajectory the U.S. is on. And so the U.S. cannot afford to do the kind of modernization that I bet HR thinks they should be doing ahead of any uh, showdown with China. Think of the submarines that are really uh, in need of upgrading. Think, think of the fact that the surface fleet is so much short, smaller now than the Chinese surface fleet. We can't afford to do it. Why? Because debt interest is going to absorb a larger number of dollars than the military budget with effect from next year. It, it's already practically the same amount of money, according to the latest numbers, going on debt service. So I, I argued that, that there's mutually assured financial destruction on both sides in their different ways. These superpowers have, have serious economic problems. Mm -hmm. John? Yeah, so we've been talking about China for a while. And and. Uh, I'm glad to see that some of the analysis that emerged, not, not individually, but collectively here, turned out to be right. Uh, China has this crazy overbuilt real estate sector. A lot of its local governments are kept afloat by selling money to real estate, selling land to real estate developers, but that eventually runs out. So they're they're out of money, uh, way too much uh, debt uh, into real estate and now kind of coming to its fizzle. But I... I uh, recessions don't uh, give rise to wars. And on its own, where I see China heading is fizzle, uh, is stagnation, not uh, implosion. And uh, our, you know, communist uh, communist regimes can stagnate for a long, long time, <laughs> um, and that's really their problem. Remember, China is still uh, quite poor relative to the U.S. Uh, its issue is long-run productivity-led growth, not aggregate demand recessions and so forth. Um, now, fizzle. When does when does fizzle turn into uh, international thing? Here, I'll a little bit defer to my better historian and military colleagues. But um, uh, you know, as long as they're secure in power, they can stay with a fizzling economy for a long time. But what we've seen is uh, countries lash out when they need uh, some external threat in order to to solidify their internal power. That's kind of a political internal question, rather than one than one that is uh, driven by uh, economic uh, affairs. Um, now, um, uh, as Neil points out, we're in a competition for dysfunction. Um, here, I uh, <laughs> I do put my chips a little on the U.S. China's got a big problem. Uh, how can it let its economy grow and maintain uh, autocratic rule by the Chinese Communist Party? Um, you know, to which nationalism and lashing out may be one one trick. The U.S. We are in a rat hole. But, uh, you know, the policy response is stop throwing money away into the tunes of hundreds of billions, get out of the way and, and let the economy really grow. The, the, we need simple fiscal reforms. China has this big problem. You know, how do you let a private open, internationally open economy uh, develop? Because they need ideas from the rest of the world. They need the exports. They need all that stuff while staying in control. That That's a real, uh, that's the real problem. So I, I forecast... Uh, fizzle and and I think you see geopolitical problems when there's an internal problem or 
uh, you know, when is the time to grab it? If, if the U.S. turns into a fiscal crisis, if the current huge just surge in deficit turn and, and you know a crisis turns into a real problem in the U.S., the other time that countries lash out is is when they see an opportunity that your 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 opponent is really busy with his own problems. And HR, the idea of a crossover point or trigger where China lashes up militarily, and my question would that be internal or external driven? Yeah, you know, I just I don't know. I think this is the, the our viewer asked the, the perfect question, right? Does uh, do, does the economic situation that China's facing, the, the difficulties they're facing, does that make them more or, or less aggressive? And you know, I'd like to to think that Neil's right that of course you know China would back off because of mutually assured financial destruction. But I'm thinking Neil back to World War One, right? And and uh, uh, Jan Block and Norman uh, Angel's work about about war no longer being feasible because it's not in anybody's economic interest to wage war, and then of course you had you had the, the first World War uh, immediately following that. So I, I think I think that that when you look at the CCP, you have to especially think about what are the what is the ideology uh, and what are the emotions that are driving and constraining those leaders. It didn't make any sense to do zero COVID economically. It didn't make any sense to crack down on the most productive sector of the economy, the tech sector. But Xi Jinping did it anyway, because as John mentioned, the party will continue to prioritize maintaining its exclusive grip on power uh, over what makes sense from an economic and financial perspective. But I, I do want to just go back to Neil's I mean, comment. He's so right. I mean, this is, this is about relative economic strength in this competition. And if we don't do something, I think to to stop the you know the the service on the debt from consuming, you know the discretionary part of the budget which, where defense is, we're gonna have a really hard time uh, developing and fielding the countermeasures to some of the the new People's Liberation Army capabilities. And as Neil mentioned, to to be able to develop military ca- capacity so that we could operate in sufficient scale uh, to deter a conflict. Okay. Just, just quickly, um, defense though is cheap. We threw, you know, we're throwing yeah. trillions of dollars down complete rat holes uh, of, of energy policy alone, and and you know, a trillion dollars would buy you a lot of stuff <laughs> in, in the defense area. So uh, people keep saying defense is this big problem for the U.S. Uh, you know, even three percent of GDP, uh, that that's not, you know, three to four percent of GDP is not a huge fraction of the government budget. Absolutely. It's a historic low, actually, uh, in context of the Cold War and, and post-Cold War period, even. We received several questions relating to the BRICS countries. Uh, BRICS, the acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and the S's of South Africa, I believe. Uh, Frederick from Sweden writes, how will the development of the BRICS bloc shift the international power balance? Can the petrodollar survive in this changing climate? And a question from Ryan in Central New York, a question for Neil and John. He writes, BRICS nations recently signaled a shift away from using U.S. dollars for bilateral trades, which have already been skirting the Western sanction efforts on Russia. Is this speeding up the end of the U.S. dollar hegemony or more largely speeding up the transition to a multipolar global order? Uh, H.R., why don't you start with the power balance, then uh, Neil and John can step in on the almighty dollar. Well, you know, I, I think this is a trend that we've seen for quite some time. The expansion of BRICS is just a, another manifestation of 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 China and, and Russia courting, you know, the what some people call the the, the global South, and and I, I'm what I'm I hope for uh, is that that over time uh, there'll be a recognition that that China's expectation of servile relationships with these countries will help them come to the conclusion uh, that uh, you know that it's unwise to bandwagon uh, with Beijing. 
when when bricks before well before bricks had any inclination to expand i found it a useful forum because we had india inside of that forum and and on critical issues that is important to uh to, to advance our interests with you know with china uh with russia you know the the brazilians uh, at times or the indians at times could provide a voice uh for for uh for policies or or uh, or uh or behavior uh, or to advocate for behavior that was aligned with our interests. So, you know, I don't see it as a, as a disaster or anything, but it, I think it should be kind of a wake-up call that we have to compete more effectively for uh, for influence in, in, in critical parts of the world. Neil and John, what does the future of the dollar look like? Well, I, I would begin by saying, don't take the BRICS too seriously. The idea of BRICS started as a Goldman Sachs marketing device. My old friend Jim O'Neill came up with it when they were trying to get their clients to invest in emerging markets. And the BRICS were going to take over the world. There were these wonderful charts Jim used to show where they would all overtake the United States at various times. Uh, well, that suddenly seems a lot less persuasive these days. And so the BRICS have morphed into a kind of tool of Chinese propaganda, uh, where the Chinese uh, bring in uh, not only the initial founding countries, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, then they added South Africa, and now the Saudis are getting in on the act. And it's all really designed to signal a geopolitical reorientation. And journalists love it because they get to add up the GDP of all the BRICS countries, and then they add up the G7 GDP, and they say, you see, it's all over for Uncle Sam. But this is all kind of unpersuasive to me. Uh, first of all, there are there are clearly members of the BRICS playing a double game, India being the obvious uh, example. Somebody described India's approach to international relations as not friendships so much as situationships. And these situationships, of course, change from week to week. This week, we're friends with the United States. Next week, we're friends with China. And you get the general idea. It doesn't add up to a, a whole lot, I think, when the chips are down. As for the dollar, I've been reading and writing articles about the demise of the dollar for a very long time. And it's still the dominant reserve currency. And it's overwhelmingly the most used currency in international transactions. I mean, the, the dent that is made in that dominance by increased use of the Chinese currency is really pretty small. It's not a convertible currency, so not many people would rather have RMB than dollars. You're going to take RMB if you can't get anything else. So this isn't really a meaningful challenge uh, to the dollar's dominance. Uh, and there'll never be another currency called the BRICS currency. That's just a kind of talking point for the Brazilian president uh Lula. So I think that that's why I'm not too phased by the BRICS. Um, John, I don't know if you agree with any of that, but count, count me skeptical. Most of it. Yeah, I'll agree. First of all, the BRICS, what do these countries have in common is a good question worth asking. Not much, except vaguely some, some vague anti-Americanism from the old non-aligned uh, movement, especially once Iran is part of the club. <laughs> what, are, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> Uh, there is the serious question of America now not Spanish. I mean, Wagner has basically colonized a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, the, the, we, we should be able to stop that pretty quickly if, if we cared. I think a lot of what's going on, and this is why I'm kind of a, a Ukraine hawk, 
uh, kind of sitting around saying who's serious here and who's going to win. <laughs> uh, and is, is America going to be serious? Is America and Europe going to be serious about how the global order works? Or should we kind of hedge our bets? As I see it as kind of a hedge our bets club. A dollar. First, the dollar remains dominant and likely will. Um, I think we vastly overstate how beneficial it is to the U.S. that the dollar is the reserve currency. If it stops being the reserve currency, it it really it gives us the right to print a few more dollars and send them abroad in return to fund trade deficits for a while. And first of all, people who talk about dollar uh, dominance, I'm not sure they they all understand that trade deficit. I like trade deficits. Printing money, sending it abroad, and they send us stuff is great. But you have to be a free market economist to think that's a great idea. That's all it gives us, and to a very limited uh, extent. So it's really not that important for the U.S. What's really going on, I think, here is is sanctions. What they're creating is a uh, break glass in case of fire. Uh, not very efficient, but rough and ready way. Uh, the U.S. is using uh, debanking uh, sanctions pretty indiscriminately. It's a very powerful tool, but it's a powerful tool so long as people don't have an alternative mechanism. So what I really see them is not building a new trading platform that will undermine dollar dominance and, and people won't hold treasury bills anymore and won't invoice in dollars. No, that won't happen until, you know, it happened to the pound when the U.S. got bigger. Uh, that won't happen for a long time. But they are building a, a way to, um, to to evade sanctions financially. And, and well, well, we've used sanctions a lot. So that's a, a thing we ought to think about when we use financial sanctions is the incentive it gives to build a, a rough and ready, not very efficient uh, way of financially busting sanctions. We have a question from Ben in Kansas who writes, is it time for the five permanent members of the UN Security Council to let in new members? If so, who? HR? No, no. <laughs> well, I think because it's already it's already so problematic, right? What can you get done within the, in the Security Council now with China and Russia? And then I would have been an advocate maybe for India, but as, as Neil said, you know, uh, India is certainly hedging. You know, this is a, a country that is uh, that that has given space maybe to some of the Chinese propaganda, but certainly uh, to Russia and has continued onslaught in, in Ukraine for reasons that are kind of understandable. Uh, but India was kind of the, the leading candidate, you know, for those who were talking about Security Council expansion. So mm -hmm. I just think we just have to be realistic about what the what the what the Security Council can and cannot get done. Um, there's still a lot you can get done within the, the United Nations on the margins around the Security Council. But it's already kind of moribund uh, based on the nature of the competition with uh, with Russia and China. Shouldn't we kick out some old members of the security council? <laughs> like Russia, for example. Uh, you know, why did they actually, you know, the Soviet Union was was there. How did Russia get to inherit that seat without any, oh. any questions? But I'll, I'll bring, I'll tee up also, because I'm sure Neil is ready to go on this one. Uh, isn't the UN just a completely dysfunctional organization at this point, which needs to either fundamental reform or just give up, which I, I think we've just kind of given up, let it trundle along and issue its communiques, but nobody pays much attention anymore. I'm kind of tempted to say that maybe the way to just finish it off is to add a whole bunch of new members to the Security Council, uh, ensuring that absolutely nothing can get done. Uh, I prefer the idea of kicking Russia out. I mean, as it's in clear violation of international law and its government is perpetrating war crimes in Ukraine, it's quite hard to understand how they can legitimately be uh, on the UN Security Council. So I think I like John's idea. Let's not grow the Security Council. Let's shrink it. Minus one. 
Well said. We had uh, questions directed to individual Goodfellows. Neil, here's one for you. It comes from Nathan in Reno, Nevada. In researching your book, Doom, did you come across anything related to the ability of those who foresaw one crisis to predict the next? Or is there a high likelihood that those who were correct once see indicators of trouble in many things, leading them to predict danger when it is unwarranted to do so? That's a great question. Uh, and it's the case that I did think a lot about this writing Doom. Cassandra's uh, uh, in fact, do quite well in our society, much better than in uh, in ancient Greece, because there's always a market for a prophecy of doom. You will nearly always get your op-ed published if you are predicting an American civil war, another Great Depression, uh, World War Three, and so on. Uh, and so there's a regular torrent of articles like that. And there's a good business to be made by predicting a financial crisis every year, because at some point there'll be one and then you'll be hailed for your prescience. Unfortunately, people who consume that kind of commentary don't keep score. Uh, they, they tend to forget uh, that the doommonger has been wrong nine years out of 10 or 19 years out of 20. Uh, and so I think the lesson I learned from writing Doom is just as uh, economists have, have predicted nine out of the last five recessions, so geopoliticians have predicted nine out of the last two world wars. Uh, and I, I think that should make us all skeptical about doom mongers as a species. Doom sells, but you'll have noticed that uh, the world hasn't ended yet. And there have been way fewer disasters than there have been predictions of disaster. I would agree with Neil on this one. We're living this year right through the absence of the most widely predicted recession pretty much ever, uh, confounding you know conventional wisdom as well as the Cassandras. Um, there's a mechanism here. Economics has a has a, something to offer. There's a mechanism. There's a reason that crises are hard to predict. Why is it you can't predict a financial crisis next year? Because if there was a scientifically valid to predict it, way to predict it would happen next year, you would run and get your money out today. If everybody ran and get their money out today, we'd have the crisis right now. So very much like the way stocks are not predictable. And this is a place where we have real, I'll call it scientific evidence that theory people who do financial economics have looked really hard at the claims that people can predict the stock market, ups, downs, crises, whatever. And the answer is <clears throat> no. Some people get it right. Some people get it right many times. But if you do this on the basis of keeping score, which we do, re remembering all the people who made false predictions and so forth, there is all, the amount that, that people are able to predict the stock market is absolutely next to nothing. Uh, it's very se selective. It's very interesting. You know, my uncle said it would go down and went down, but it, it's really not there. And HR may want to chime in on, on the predictability of war and international crises, which I think has the same problem. It is interesting. The Cassandras have mechanisms. You know, the people said financial crisis. They were right. They saw fragilities. Uh, the problem is, you, you know, you, you tend to be right once. Uh, and, and, uh, it's, and it's hard to integrate that thinking into better predictions. Well, I mean, you know, kind of predictable for an historian. I'm going to say, I think one of the keys to forecasting, and there was a book, uh, Super Forecasting, years ago. I forget the name of the yes. author, but you know, Philip Tetlock. Oh, yeah, great book. You know, I think it had like six six keys to success in forecasting. And uh, one of them, you know, 
uh, appealed to me as a historian, which is to, to spend twice as much time looking backward as you, as you do forward. And I think oftentimes what happens, and I, I used to have this job of, of, uh, of, of designing the future army. And, and I look back at like all how wrong we had been oftentimes about just the character of future warfare. And, and, and the conclusion that, that I, I came to is that, is that those who were the most wrong about the character of future war neglected continuities in the nature of war and and were biased in favor of change and and so you know the historian Carl Becker in an address he gave I think to the American Historical Association in like 1938 he said uh he said memory of past and anticipation of future should walk hand in hand in a happy way and uh and so I, I think that the the real key to success though to being a forecaster is to forecast far enough out such that you're long gone by the time the people understand what the reality is. So I think I think the, the key, the, the, what's important is to make a grounded projection into the near future and to do so based on an understanding of how the, the recent past produced the present. But HR, I know Bill wants to move on, but HR, you're bringing up a really good point. We're trying to do this right now. Here we are dumping on forecasters. And what do the three of us, the four of us do week after week, but try to peer in the future and say, oh, there's going to be a debt crisis, even though we've been talking about that since 1980 and it hasn't happened yet. Oh, you know, China's going to have Taiwan. Uh, so, you're, you know, the capacity of both individuals to get this right is important. And the capacity of, of governments and, and and policy institutions to assimilate those information and at least if not to forecast the future to understand the risks that you should be hedging and this is my standard advice for finances is, is number one don't try to say here's where the market's going take advantage of it make sure that you've got the risks all in a row I, I learned this from from HR uh, you know that's how you run a military campaign but um we, we shouldn't take it too lightly because we're in that business. <laughs> You know, I'll t- I just just quick just quickly on this. I, there is a methodology you can apply. We we don't want to go into it now, but you can. There's a way of thinking about alternative futures that helps you kind of think about you know indicators, false indicators, and then I think the way to understand uh, really you know what the what what the, what the alternative futures are uh, uh, are is to remain engaged with it. You can't just like make a pred- prediction and then disengage from that. You know, from that problem set, and there's a book by R. P. Eddy and a co-author on Cassandra's that lays out this kind of methodology. That's that's pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. Neil, you want to add something? I was I was going to say that the the key thing, uh, if you're going to try to do what, as John rightly says, we do, is is do it honestly and keep keep score. Uh, it's something I introduced at, at Greenmantle, my advisory business, where we 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 basically score every predictive statement that we make in our research at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, and we begin the year with a set of predictions that we then assess at the end of the year. And it's humbling because uh, you know, you're you're gonna do at best 66%, you might get to 70%, but you will just get stuff wrong. And uh, the, the problem for so-called public intellectuals who just pontificate in, in op-eds is that they don't hold themselves to that kind uh, of account. And they also uh, fall into the trap that if you get something right and you're hailed for your prescience in the media, then you're strongly tempted to think that you were in fact prescient and, and that, that you should keep doing it. And, and hence the the phenomenon of Doctor Doom, and it's it's a it's a kind of intellectual trap that some people I'm not mentioning any names fall into. 
Uh, so I think the key, and this goes right back to our, our listeners' question is, you know, be honest about it and make sure that the pundits you're reading practice that kind of rigor. Uh, otherwise, it, it just does become a kind of a, a kind of phony, uh, a phony game, as, as HR says, where you're never held to account for the prophecies that turned out to be wrong. Can, and it's, and it's okay. It's okay to say, "Hey, I don't know." Like I don't know. I mean, I mean, there's some things that are just impossible to predict, right? That's okay. Ed. One last thing: predicting the future is largely about predicting shocks, which is predicting the unknowable. But we, largely speaking, actually do know something. Cause and effect statements are things, ifs and thens, are something we know a lot more about than what's going to happen in the future. I don't know where the economy is going next year, but I know what happens if you pass a rent control law with great certainty. So there, there we know more. Don't evaluate um, intellectuals or, or the our enterprise just by unconditional forecasting of what will happen uh, next. We know a lot more about if thens and we know a lot more about risks. I can't resist adding that the super forecasters were terribly wrong about the war in Ukraine. Uh, so even the super forecasters felt fall flat on their fears periodically because history is indeed the realm of uncertainty and, and the unknowable. And, and that's why the, the, the game of prediction is in some sense a, a futile one. Okay, John, put on your track shoes. I want to give you three questions. I want you to sprint through them. Are you ready? I gotta get my, my famous notepad, the Neil Ferguson questions. notepad. We can, the rest of us can go home. <laughs> By the way, I think Neil had his head down at one point. Neil was maybe taking notes too, but uh, okay. No, so, no, never, never. Okay, John. Quick questions. Here we go. Question number one: The U.S. debt is over thirty trillion dollars in twenty twenty four. The U.S. is projected to pay nearly eight hundred billion dollars in debt service alone. Question: How does this end? Or alternatively, is now the time to start buying gold? <laughs> that's I'm a quick I'm question. glad you got the math question. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it ends uh, it ends either with uh, ruinously high taxes, um, uh, big inflation, or fiscal consolidation, primarily focused on growth. Good luck. Is now the time to buy gold? No, uh, gold is is a terrible way to hedge yourself. If you're worried about inflation. The best thing I can offer is a long dated uh, Treasury inflation protected securities which are pre pretty good unless the U.S. government defaults. Good good sprint. Well done. Question number two, is a higher interest rate better for the economy? What can we glean from history? <laughs> like all prices, higher interest rates are sometimes a cause of bad things and sometimes a sign of good things. Uh, there's always supply and demand. Uh, higher interest rates are great for savers and not so great for borrowers, uh, largely a, uh, a transfer. An economy that's growing really fast because there's lots of productive opportunities, lots of demand for capital building stuff. That's going to have high interest rates. That's a sign of a good thing. Uh, higher interest rates can all, you know, they can also choke off. So there's always supply and demand. Nothing is ever per se a good or a bad sign. Neil, did you want to jump in on the history aspect of that question? I am just loving the concise John Cochran. <laughs> Let's see if John could go for three for three. A question from Don in Ontario, Canada. I worry about productivity, wealth generated per capita. What are the basic elements that support sustained and increasing productivity and the elements that lead to decreasing productivity? Productivity is the most important thing. And, and the most in, important economic question is long-run growth. And that comes from uh, long-run productivity growth, being able to do more uh, per hour. So that's the right question and the one that we largely ignore. In the long run, uh, where it comes from is really better ideas, um, better ways of doing things, which get implemented into better products, processes, and in, usually into new companies 
uh, and is always disruptive. Everybody hates growth. People don't like Uber taking over from the taxis. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't like building uh, factories next door. Uh, so that's, it is the most important economic question. Fundamentally, it comes from the freedom to innovate uh, and to, to, to find and implement better ideas. Okay. Neil, are you impressed? It's John's productivity, which is just blowing me away. I don't think we've ever witnessed anything quite like this on Goodfellas. Uh, I don't know what coffee you're drinking today, John, but I'd love a recommendation. The Hoover Institution free tea from the uh, tea room, which I highly wow, recommend. Wow, that stuff is Actually, it's terrible, but it's got the right amount of caffeine in it. <laughs> I'm getting some of that. I'm going to get some of that. Okay, HR, you're up. We have a question from <laughs> Dell in Crown Point, Indiana. He writes, in Ukraine, what lessons are being learned about weapons and tactics and who is learning them? Similar to the Spanish Civil War being a testing ground for Germany in the 1930s. Yeah, I think there, there's tremendous amount of lessons being learned, which have to do a lot with, you know, some old lessons and some new ones, right? And, and I think what we're learning overall is that is that new forms of warfare don't replace the old ones. They're oftentimes additive. And, and I think that's that's a headline lesson. And then, of course, there are all sorts of lessons involving you know, specific types of weapon systems, you, ubiquity of drones. But now we're also seeing the countermeasures to drones, for example. Russia's uh, quite considerable electronic warfare capability and GPS jamming, for example, makes drones much less effective. So I think what we're seeing is 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 war and warfare's interactive nature, continuous adaptation, um, and and uh, and highlighting some of the continuities uh, in in the character of warfare as well as some changes. Mm -hmm. Neil, uh, John, you want to jump in on that? Well, I was going to say to illustrate that point uh, that you made earlier, HR, about the future and the past walking hand in hand, to me, the really striking thing about the war in Ukraine is that it combines elements of uh, the frontier of, of innovation, particularly the use of drones for reconnaissance, as well as uh, as attacks with uh, with World War One fortifications. I mean, it's trench warfare. The Russians have dug themselves in and made it very hard for the Ukrainians uh, to stage a successful counteroffensive. Uh, and it's a perfect illustration of that of that point that you made, HR. I'm on my way to Ukraine later this week, uh, and uh, I'll I'll be very interested to hear uh, what the mood is because it's hard to escape the sense that they haven't been able to achieve the decisive breakthrough that many people were hoping for. Uh, there's a small breakthrough that's been reported this week, but it's hard for me to see that that will suffice because if there's only one, the Russians will be able to deploy reserves. So it's striking to me how much all the novelty, particularly in the use of drones, has coincided with almost a return to the war of 100 years ago. Well, this is a great chance for me to ask. Bill asked us to each prepare a question for the other one. So this was my question for HR anyway. Uh, yes, U Ukraine is, is very interesting. Now it is, it's trench warfare without air power. So we're back to, you know, 19, 1913, 1914, sorry, 1914 trench warfare, which is, uh, it's, I mean, it's not clear that's going to be repeated. Uh, there's peculiarities of this one that, that doesn't have uh, air power. Uh, but we are seeing the, the drone uh, warfare. That seems to be very new. And there, there was a Wall Street Journal article just a couple of days ago saying, you know, we were talking about military procurement, that our military is, its claim was uh, the, the next naval war is going to be the war of the naval drones and that the big battleships and aircraft carriers are going to be just completely useless and sitting ducks. And that it's not that we're not spending enough money, we're spending money on completely the wrong things. So in this new drone warfare uh, and particularly how it, it affects the Navy, which I know it's never going to affect the tank, right? But it, 
<laughs> uh, that seems to be uh, the, the, it, incredibly lethal. There's nowhere to hide anymore on the battlefield. Um, that seems to change the way things are going to run pretty fundamentally and in ways that maybe our military isn't thinking about. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think this was kind of predictable. You know, back in, in the early 90s, I wrote a white paper for the chief of armor in the army. And, I, and one of the lines in it was that in the future, all forces will have to operate as if they were in visual range of the enemy based on the increased transparency of the, of the battlefield, which will put you know a big emphasis on being able to operate widely dispersed and employ traditional countermeasures, uh, dispersion, concealment, intermingling with civilian populations, but then be able to concentrate rapidly. So you need a high degree of mobility. You know, there are all sorts of other implications, obviously, for the development of future forces. But I think what you're going to see, John, again, is, is this kind of combination of old and new. You know, you're, you know, aircraft carriers may still have a role in, in projecting, uh, you know, uh, air, aircraft into areas at long uh, lines of communication. But they're going to have to operate outside of the, these sort of anti-access air denial bubbles. Uh, you're going to have to try to jam enemy satellites or disable enemy satellites or other ways of locating that aircraft carrier. And then to, to be able to disrupt, you know, the kill chain associated with that. So it's going to be this kind of continuous interaction, integration of these drones, which now you know are are, are really uh, not experimental anymore. They're being employed by the U.S. Navy, the Australian Navy, undersea drones. Um, but but they'll be in combination with some of the old, you know. And and so for the tank, for example, I think every tank should have multiple unmanned systems that it can operate from that platform. You know, they can provide early warning of enemy activity. They can uh they can they can help that force move quickly with mobile protected firepower, which is what a tank is. So that'll exist in some form. It won't look like the current tank, but so you can employ mobile protected firepower quickly by by moving rapidly between between reconnoitered areas rather than what the Russians did, right? Which was lead with their nose and drive their tank to, down a road until it got blown up. So I think it's going to be these combinations of capabilities you're going to see on air, sea, land, aerospace, cyberspace, um, and 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 the, but the pace of change is accelerating. And, and we need to invest in that change. Let me as long Absolutely. let me ask HR a quick another question while we're on Ukraine. Was it a mistake to pause over the winter? Uh, one, one thing I learned from military history is no matter how tired you are, you should always pursue the retreating enemy. And it sounds like stopping and waiting for the winter, uh, you know, for Ukraine to get its act together was, in fact, a big mistake. Do you think so? I think it was, it was a mistake to wait to give them the capabilities that they were going to need for a sustained counteroffensive. But, you know, really, both sides had kind of culminated uh, after after the summer. And, and you know, the, the Russians got overextended, right? The, the Ukrainians uh, conducted that massive counterattack May, June and so forth. Uh, which which reclaimed twenty two thousand, I think, or so square kilometers of of territory, uh, but then that that crunched down the Russian lines, and and the U Ukrainians were unable to develop the combat power to penetrate those defenses. So I just don't think it was feasible. And those who were saying, "Oh, like we're really disappointed in the Ukrainian offensive," I think it was is kind of predictable. It's hard. It's really hard to penetrate that kind of prepared defense. And what you're seeing is is the effect of electronic warfare, as I mentioned, plus artillery. Uh, and these fortifications. The Ukrainians I mean, need more combined arms capabilities. They need more mobility assets, combat engineering, which I think we, we talked about a, a few shows ago. Okay, one more question for HR. It comes from Jake in Michigan. He writes, General McMaster, I'm a proud veteran, U.S. Army, the 75th Ranger Regiment, and Operation Enduring Freedom. 
After the completion of my service, I was blessed with the opportunity of receiving my BA in history, studying under Victor Davis Hanson, and encountering your excellent book, Battlegrounds. The conclusion of your book not only profoundly moved me, but offered a compelling reminder to young Americans like myself that Americans have and can overcome any obstacle in our path. What is your advice for a 30-year-old like me for reinvigorating a love and duty of country into my fellow millennials? I mean, I think talk to them about the rewards of service. We have this crazy narrative out there today, you know, that portrays the military as like extremist or woke. It's neither of those, right? The military is committed to supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States. And what is so rewarding about that kind of service together is your ability to, to come together in a, an organization that really takes on the bonds of the family based on common purpose and mutual trust uh, and respect. And being part of this kind of family in which the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. So I think a lot of times these days you see it portrayed in popular uh, culture that, you know, veterans are fragile, traumatized, you know, human beings. Uh, when, in fact, veterans like 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 this, like this uh, member of our audience, you know, uh, goes on to make tremendous contributions to our society after they after they leave uniform. We have a great veterans fellowship here at Hoover. I'm telling you, if our readers ought to check it out, uh, because what these are are veterans who have decided to continue to contribute to America in other ways, and then Hoover offers its resources to help them crystallize their idea uh, and implement their their programs. And so, I would just say, talk to. You know, talk to young people about the rewards of military service, encourage them to volunteer. I mean, I, I think that in no other walk of life can you take on more responsibility at a younger age. And you don't have to serve for a full career like I did, man, like 34 years. My plan was to serve five. You know, I did a bonus 29. You don't have to do that. I mean, so I, I think like talking about the rewards and the last thing I'd like to say to this viewer is Rangers lead the way. Well, well said. Uh, let's uh, stick with two questions about Ukraine. Jurgis in Lithuania writes, if Donald Trump wins the presidential election in 2024, how would U.S. foreign policy towards NATO change? For example, would you would you see a risk to the, that U.S. might not comply with or might interpret differently? Article 5 of the NATO Treaty and Barrett in Austin, Texas writes, does the death of Prigozhin change anything in geopolitical strategic terms? He adds, by the way, John Cochran loved the show I've about John Cochran's fiscal tome to round out my good fellow's bibliography. So, Neil, what about it? Prigozhin. What changes? Well, we said when the mutiny attempt happened that this was a mafia state. And uh, since Prigozhin failed to rally other mafiosi to the mutiny, it was pretty predictable that he would meet with a sticky end. And Putin waited two months. And on the two-month uh, two mark, he, he rather spectacularly uh, took Prigozhin out. That reasserts Putin's authority as the uh, capo de capi uh, mm -hmm. and ensures that anybody uh, who was contemplating similar uh, insurrection has been deterred. It's kind of an open and shut case, I think. The, the interesting point that uh, that is worth pondering is why he waited two months. And I think the answer to that is that the complexity of the, the Wagner group uh, it's operations that extend, as John mentioned earlier, all the way into Africa, leading to coups and instability in a bunch of uh, African countries. It took a while, uh, I think, for Putin to figure out uh, enough to be able to take it over and, and take out Prigozhin. It hasn't had 
major implications, I think, for the conduct of the war. Any hope that this would cause a crisis of morale amongst Russian troops, I think, has long since uh, dissipated. Uh, and so we're left uh, with a war of attrition uh, that is very hard for Ukraine uh, to win without the kind of air power that you would you would need to make a success of the kind of offensive that they're conducting. HR, you're as close as we come on the show to a resident Trump whisperer. So well, would Trump treat NATO differently in a second Trump term? You know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I, I think so much of his approach toward allies, you know, makes sense. But then he engages in contradictory behavior. You know, for example, you know, he's all about burden sharing, which is good. And he was right, I think, to complain that, that certain countries were free riding, Germany in, in, in particular, others. Uh, but then at the same time, he, he doesn't recognize the maybe sometimes the value of, of alliances for burden sharing. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's just hard to predict. And I don't know really know how uh, enough about how his thinking evolved after I left in 2018. And, um, you know, but I, I would be concerned about it. You know, I do think that uh, I do think that this is what is keep, keeping Putin uh, you know, hopeful is is this idea uh, that that we that, that the transatlantic you know uh, community and 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 uh, and NATO and and the U.S. relations with the EU will fragment uh, because he believes we're fundamentally weak and decadent and everything already uh, and uh, and so he's just trying to thinks he can wait us out for us to collapse uh, in terms of at least the the the, uh, the willingness to support Ukraine. Let me make two, two comments. Um, Prigozhin, uh, what I see here is is the Russian state taking over this mafia empire, especially in the third world, which has essentially colonized these countries, put its soldiers in and taking raw materials out. And, and that, that's a nice business for, for Putin. Um, it's uh, too bad Putin couldn't arrange a nice Russian Orthodox baptism to be at while the plane went down. That would have really made the point even better. Uh, Trump and you know, you, know, you know what he was doing, John. He was he was pinning medals on Russian soldiers. Oh, he so, did. I'm sorry, I didn't know that. So just he was good. at that moment. So there it was. There was a choreographed moment, like like the baptism of the Godfather. Do you renounce Satan? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know that. Fantastic. We just need a good musical score and we're right there. All differences have been settled. Trump, Trump, Trump and NATO. I think uh, if you think about what happens after if Trump gets elected, uh, his personal policy preferences regarding NATO are the least important issue, especially in foreign policy. If if it's Trump versus Biden, I said it last time, but I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. We are headed for constitutional crisis, especially if it's Trump. The, the Democrats, first of all, it's going to be litigated. This one's going to go to the Supreme Court no matter what. Every single ballot is going to be litigated. The chance that the Democrats say, oh, well, we lost this one. Trump is president. He gets to do foreign policy and do what he wants. The heck with that. It's it's going to be the entire institutional apparatus of the government. The Democratic Party feels with some reason that Trump was, would be completely illegitimate, no matter how what fraction of the vote he gets. And they will treat him like that. It's going to be scorched earth warfare in Washington. The last thing anyone's going to be paying attention to is Trump's statements about how we interpret Article 5 of NATO. Hey, Neil, here's one I want you to take on from Clive in Seattle. Presidents and leadership in both the Democratic and Republican parties in the U.S. are getting older. Compared with European countries being led by much younger leadership, the U.S. seems at odds with its peers. Is this just a phase that major countries go through? Is it a bug in the U.S. system? Will the U.S. revert to younger leadership? 
It will, I think, revert to younger leadership, and the sooner the better. I think the uh, the public is conscious, including many Democrats, that the President Biden is really much too old to be uh, in the most demanding job in the world, which I think the President of the United States is. Uh, why has this happened? My friend at Princeton, Harold James, wrote a great essay in 2020, which I may have quoted before on Goodfellas, about late Soviet America. Uh, and I like this idea because it captures some of the, the institutional sclerosis that can happen to any political system. If elites become too entrenched, if there are no good mechanisms uh, for propelling people into retirement, I mean, look at the difficulty of getting Diane Feinstein to retire from uh, the seat she occupies uh, for the Senate. Uh, I think this is a dangerous path to go down. It's dangerous because the evidence of Biden's senility, of course, adds uh, to the risk that uh, in a rerun of, of Trump v. Biden, the Democrats lose. They must be aware that they're running a big risk in doing this. Uh, and I, no I noticed Nancy Pelosi jumping to the defense of Joe Biden and arguing that age was no bar. Well, it takes one to no one, doesn't it? Uh, you come to the UK and the politicians are all younger than us, including uh, recent prime ministers. And you can see that that has some risks too. I think Liz Truss fell victim to her own inexperience when she was very briefly and ignominiously prime minister. So I don't want to say I'm a believer in the cult of youth. It just seems to me that the US needs a new generation. And that generation is there in Congress. It's there in political and public life. And it's been kept, as it were, in the wings by the baby boomers who just aren't ready to accept that it's time to focus on their golf game and their grandchildren. I wish uh, that some uh, of those listening get this message across because we could have a very different election in 2024. Let's imagine it's Newsom versus DeSantis. I think that would be a refreshing contest if we could only have it. Is it that simple, John, or to boomers not getting off the stage? Well, I would add that, that what I want is is competent leaders. Not I don't really care about their age. I would rather they weren't, you know, senile. But you mm -hmm. know, the, the problem with America is is incompetent uh, leaders, um, and not not so much their age. I remember Ronald Reagan had this great line about, "I will forgive my opponent's youth and inexperience." When asked about his age, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Uh, so there is something to, to experience when people are, are still there. Uh, but let's, it, what we desperately need is get back to common. And, and any, and the Republican debate was, you know, most, most of them seem completely competent. Now we need to expect of our leaders, mind the store, you know, just, just keep this thing afloat would be good enough right now. I, I think that would be nice uh, as opposed to the way things go. And I think part of the problem there, it's a structural problem. Why are we picking leaders that nobody wants? <laughs> and we're, we're, we're headed down this completely predictable disaster right now. And I think a lot of it is in, in the rules of the game. I'm an economist, so I look at the rules of the game. And, uh, you know, when political parties were strong, they would not have allowed, you know, the, the kind of people who end up in general elections 
to to win their to to win with their nomination, and that that goes for congressional uh, as well as uh, presidential elections. Uh, so that I think this, that one of those many unintended uh, consequences of what sounded like good reforms is that we end up with parties being forced to choose people that they know are both bad at, at what they're going to do, bad at governance, uh, too old in many occasions, uh, and and more extreme than than what uh, what the voters actually want. Just a quick fact for those interested, the average age of Fortune 500 CEOs is 57. Okay, HR, what about treating the political system like the military system? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there, there is sort of a, a restriction on age in the military for good reason, just because you physically you've got to be able to, to keep up. And, you know, after World War One and the disasters and generalship there, I'm thinking of JFC Fuller's pamphlet, Generalship, Its Diseases and Their Cure which I recommend to our viewers because it's extremely well-written. Maybe we need a pamphlet like that. But, you know, as John said, I mean, the, the most important thing is competence. You know, when I think about generalship, one of my favorite characters in military history is Blucher, you know, the, the Prussian cavalry commander who in the 70s rides into battle and 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 saves the day at, at, at Waterloo. Now, you know, he he, uh, he was a phenomenal guy. He, he, got a, he got a hot garlic oil rub down every night. Uh, after after being on horseback all day, but uh, but he was still an effective cavalry commander at a quite an advanced age for the for that time. Yeah, we can think of all sorts of young politicians who would be complete disasters. <laughs> so let's not. Uh... Maybe they all need a rubdown. You know, garlic oil rubdown. I, I got to try that. You know, my bike ride this morning really left me a little sore. <laughs> My wife, I don't think, is going to go for it. <laughs> you never know, John. <laughs> All right. On that lovely non-academic note, let us now shift to the lightning round. This was the lightning round. <laughs> Can Cochran go even faster? Okay. Here we go, guys. Lightning round questions. Here we go. We begin with probably the most polarizing question we got in this batch. It comes from Tyler Nottingham, England. He writes, how is HR so charismatic? What is the secret to staying so positive? Hey, hey, what's the hey, what's the alternative? You know, I mean, and 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 I think hey, we do have agency over our lives and in these difficult situations. And you know, I just happen to you know, I've I've seen a lot of bad in the world. I've seen a lot of evil in the world, but I've also seen good triumph over that evil uh, when, when when people are determined to fight against it. So, you know, I think so much of the narrative today is about loss of sense sense of agency. And uh, hey, I'm all about you know actively uh, trying to build a better future. So, um, and and I've seen it work. All right, Ewan in Scotland writes: Could the Goodfellows give the suggestion of a novel or work of fiction that highlights a great challenge to the free and open societies of the West? Neil. Well, Green Mantle is of course uh, a remarkable uh, work of John Buchan's, uh, the successors of the better known Thirty Nine Steps. And it's based on a real story which Buchan knew about during World War I when he worked for British military intelligence. And that was the German plot to unleash jihad against the British and French empires and, and rouse up the Muslim populations of those empires. The Germans really tried to do this. And it's a remarkable story uh, that uh, in, in Buchan's telling is also a, a ripping yarn. So I recommend Green Mountain. Mm -hmm. John, HR? The, the obvious one is 1984, uh, which still is a good good read. Somebody needs to update 1984 for uh, today's um, 
political, especially with the fascinating language bubbling up from the progressive left all the time. But HR? I think so much what we talk about is, is leadership and, and what makes an effective leader. And I think it does come down to your, your base motivation and your sense of duty. So I like Anton Myers once an eagle. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat it. You know, it's a, it's an epic tale of, of really a protagonist and an antagonist who are, who are motivated differently. One, one is, what is, uh, is trying to climb the ladder uh, while the other is just trying to do his duty. This is Sam Damon is the, as the positive uh, example, not, not, a, not a man without flaws, but a effective leader. And Courtney Massingale, what a great name uh, for, for, for someone who's, who's trying to advance his own interests at others' expense. So once an eagle. All right, David, in Worcester, UK, writes, what is the best historical novel you've ever read? Uh, good fellows are disqualified from their own work here. HR, what is the best historical novel you've ever read? You know, I've, I've read a lot of them. And, you know, I was, you know, Michener, I love Michener's novels, you know, so I, I, I learned quite, and maybe it's not all correct and everything, but but uh, but also, you know, I don't think you can beat the Flashman series. I mean, honestly, I mean, because because they're historically accurate and they're so damn funny. I mean, honestly, I mean, you'll just find yourself laughing out loud because it follows this cad through all of these you know historical uh, events and situations, and and he he is completely not a well motivated leader but then but then is is so is so uh bad in in pursuing his own interests that he winds up appearing as a hero you know i mean it's just it's a phenomenal series begin with flashman then read flash for freedom and it's just they're, they're all phenomenal george mcdonald fraser the author a glasgow academical like you're uh, my good self i'll i'll throw in the greatest uh historical novel Waverley by Walter Scott, the original historical novel, really, about the 1745 uh, Jacobite Rising, and then War and Peace, which uh, I used to always ask the students at Harvard who had read War and Peace, and there was a time when you'd usually get a good number of hands, uh, and then latterly almost nobody had read it. But War and Peace is the great historical novel, and, and I still regard it as, as one of the formative influences on my life. Hey, just quickly on George McDonald Frazier, the author of the Flashman series, also read his memoir of, of, the, of, the, of fighting in Burma, uh, Quartered Safe Out Here. I mean, a phenomenal memoir. And again, his sense of humor is tremendous. I mean, just to quickly, you know, he, he tells this great story about General Slim. And General Slim is giving a pep talk to the soldiers right before an offensive. And, and, uh, and, and he hears shouting from the crowd, we'll be right behind you, General. And Slim laughs and he goes, oh. I'm going to be way behind you guys. So it just really <laughs> revealed Slim's character. But another, another, not not fiction in this case, but anything George McDonald Fraser writes is is, is phenomenal. John, John Cochran, proud amateur Peggy, historian. Peggy uh, Noonan wrote a, a nice uh, um, uh, editorial last weekend on the joys of rereading uh, War and Peace, mm -hmm. which I, I thought was very good. I I'll, put in, uh, I'll put in. I'll put in my two. Um, you know, just which may just show you. Uh, what, what I happen to have read. I really enjoyed the Hillary Mantel series on uh, Thomas Cromwell, uh, painted a, a very interesting picture of the person and, and the time. And of course, the Patrick O'Brien series, starting with Master and Commander, uh, is absolutely lovely for putting you so, so beautifully in the mentality of the people. I'll just, there's one particularly great scene. He goes on and on about describing a gripping encounter between British and French ships and all the things he did. And then he has the guy be court-martialed. 
And he has the transcript of the court martial, which is so dry. And I, oh, I, I can see an author showing off. What he's telling you is, this is the kind of stuff I read to research this thing. And look at how I can turn this. We did this. And then for two days, we rode the ships. And then we and, and then turned it into this wonderful, wonderful description. So those I love. For what I love about historic history and historical novels, putting you in the mentality of people at the time and how they saw the world and how they understood it, how it works. All right. A question from Josh in Sydney. He writes, each one of the Goodfellows is a highly articulate and accomplished speaker. What is their routine for preparing for speeches or interviews and clarifying their thinking on topics? And do they still feel nervous when delivering keynotes? Well, John, you did the Bradley Prize recently. Did you Did you have butterflies when you did that? Uh, that one, <laughs> I was given seven minutes to say everything I have to say about the world. So I actually <laughs> worked hard on that one. Uh, Whereas normally I wing it. One of the great uh, ways to become a good public speaker is teach. Uh, and and when I started, you know, I had notes and blah blah, blah very confused. And by the time you do this for thirty years, tell me what we're talking about. Tell me who the audience is. Tell me how much time I got. Give me five minutes. I'm ready to go. All right, HR. I think reading and listening to others, you learn a, a lot, and then be prepared. Uh, but then don't over prepare yourself with a script. And and uh, if you know your subject, outline it. Think about your audience. What is your audience interested in? What would be valuable for them to hear? Uh, and uh, and I do I do think the teaching has has helped quite a bit. You know, in, in terms of trying to trying to compress understanding of of complex uh, events and and developments and and trends. Uh, into into a succinct presentation, I think, it, or or even a, a short essay, uh, is an important skill that you have to develop over time. But Adrian just said it. Think about your audience. Who are they? What do they know? What do they believe? That's the key to communicating with them. Professor Ferguson, I will never be as powerful and charismatic a speaker as my wife, uh, Ayan Hersi Ali. And she gets far more nervous about speaking than I do, uh, which is odd, considering that she nearly always gets a standing ovation. And, and I've distilled it down, partly through observing her, to three maxims. Make him laugh, make him cry, and make him stand up and cheer. That's the key to a good speech. I just wish I could give one. Uh, I, I wouldn't sell yourself short. <laughs> well done. All right, guys, the last question. Since we began the lightning round with uh, asking the question, how is HR so charismatic? Let us end on another HR note. Robert in Colorado writes, would John and Neil be willing to serve in a future President McMaster administration? And he's been so kind as to give you two of your appointments. John, you will be director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Neil, you're the Secretary of Defense. If I were, I would serve happily for HR in that or any role. Uh, the second day, the first day of my tenure at the CFPB, I would disband the CFPB and fire everybody. So then <laughs> HR either has to find a job for me the second day or send me back home to Hoover to get back to writing. Hey, can I just tell you quickly, when Mick Mulvaney took over, the, to, over that organization, he brought in a whole bunch of donuts and everything, completely disarmed everybody because that was his intention too, is to neuter it or, or eliminate it. <laughs> All right. Now let us ponder a world in which Neil Ferguson is running the Pentagon. Yeah, it's a terrifying thought. I, I would serve HR in, in any role that he uh, that he offered me, including making the coffee. Uh, I think the 
daunting thing about the the Pentagon is the sheer scale of the bureaucracy. And I'm not sure that I, with my notorious lack of military proficiency, would be a particularly credible Secretary of Defense. Uh, so I would plead for another assignment. Uh, I'm I'm thinking that uh, I'd probably be uh, a better I'd better shot at, at the job you had HR, uh, which is National Security Advisor. Uh, so if if it's all right with you, I'll duck the Pentagon. You need somebody with some ribbons on the chest to to strip that thing down and run it efficiently. I'll I'll just sit in the White House. Uh, giving you advice that you can ignore, Mr. President. Well, I, I just want to be a fly on the wall and be there for the Cochrane and Ferguson confirmation hearings. And just so we know, we're talking about historical fiction. This is future fiction because this is not going to happen. Okay, so you're pulling, you're pulling a Sherman on us. You're not running. No. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thus concludes our mailbag episode. Uh, again, I'd like to apologize to everyone out there who wrote and uh, whose questions we did get to. That includes Jeff in Nevada, who uh, wanted to talk about the justice system. Uh, Jeff, we're doing a show later this month with Eugene Volokh, who's a uh, law professor and blogger. So we'll be talking about the Supreme Court and other judicial matters, such as the 14th Amendment. Uh, Brendan in Washington, D.C. Uh, desperately wants to know we're going to have Steve Kotkin on the show. And the answer, Brendan, is mid-October. Matt in Huntsville, Alabama, wanted to talk about Ridley Scott's film, Napoleon. We thought we would save that, Matt, until December when our guest will be the esteemed Lord Andrew Roberts, who has written several um, books on Napoleon. Uh, so stay tuned for that. On behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we hope you enjoyed today's show. Thanks, as always, for watching, and we will see you soon. Till then, take care, and again, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.